0: Well, we're in uh, this walking through the book of Malachi, and I'm going to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to, to Malachi. It's easy to find the book of Malachi if you can find Matthew in the New Testament, the very first book of the New Testament. Just turn uh, left a little bit, it's the last book of the Old Testament. And last week I opened uh, up the pages of these, uh, these 55 verses, four chapters here. And really, the focus as we begin to see it is is do we have an empty religion, meaning we're going through the motions, which some of you may be tempted to do at Christmas? Let's just go through the motions. Let's make the food. Let's eat it. Let's open the gifts. Let's just get it over with. But we ought to be having a vibrant faith, a vibrant uh, uh, connection to our God during this season and to the people in our lives. And so. Is it empty religion or vibrant faith? That's the focus of the book of Malachi. Malachi is the messenger here. He's bringing a message. There are several messengers in this book. Uh, He is the writer here. He speaks very little about himself. But he did introduce the messenger of John the Baptist, who is going to be uh, the forerunner for Jesus. And then Jesus, the ultimate messenger of the covenant. The conversation in these 55 verses is between a father and a rebellious child. The father's going to make six disputations, six criticisms, six points of of concern. And rather than the child saying, oh, thank you, father, for pointing this out. Let me correct my perspective. Let me correct my behavior. They just question the father. You say, I'm not doing something? How am I not doing this? You know, where? Can you show me any error in my ways? And so our great father, through the prophet Malachi does begin to show them how they are failing to follow God's best. For a helpful uh, perspective, I put within your notes today uh, Malachi's chiastic structure. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with Jewish writing. There are times uh, they will use a, what's called a chiasm. Uh, they'll have a thought They'll put the other thought, and the other thought, and the other thought, and then they'll work their way backwards out of the system so you understand the connection between the first thought and the last thought or kind of the bookends. And so you'll see that in this, this uh, outline. Rather than going verse by verse from verse chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through, I, I intentionally chose to jump right into the middle of the section here, where the first disputation, which is about God's love and His promises, is connected to the sixth disputation, God's consistent care in chapter 3 verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Uh, the second disputation there is about God's position and what has to do with His pos- you know, our possessions and how we're, we're responsible for what we give to our Lord. And the second disputation is connected to the fifth disputation. As you see, God's provision and possessions. Last week, we looked right in the heart of this book, the third disputation about God's faithfulness, where He addressed how we, we interact with people, and He focused on marriage and then God's justice, and how we interact and have a perspective of mankind. So going from the center and working our way out is how God gives us Malachi, and that's how I'm going to address this. The heart of this book has to do with our worship. Right in the middle the middle verse of these thirty-five verses is chapter 2, verse 13, as I addressed last week. It says, there is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning. You, you hear the emotion they brought to worship. There's a reason why this emotion has been invoked. It's because, he says in verse 13 of chapter 2, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Rather than going into worship to say, God, evaluate my life. Uh, I want to test and see if I'm in the faith. I want to make sure I'm clean before you. Uh, uh, Show me where you need to still do some work within me. They, in in a real rebellious way, just say, why aren't you accepting our offering? We do everything right. I mean, here it is. Our worship is given to you. We're, we're weeping and crying. We have all the emotions. We're at least here. We're, we're checking the box. We're present at worship. Why is it that you do not accept it? Their worship was inadequate because their heart truly wasn't in it. When we walk through the motions, when we, we just check the box, we, we do what's expected, but there's no heart behind it. It hinders our worship. All of us have been guilty at times. Going to work where we had no heart to do it. Perhaps your children have cleaned their room because you asked, but guaranteed they didn't want to and they didn't feel good doing it. We all have those times where we go through the motions because it's expected. It's our duty. But when does our worship become a delight? When is it what what makes our heart beat? Man, I get to talk to God today. I get to hear from Him and His Word. When when is it that it just overwhelms you that in any era uh, era of your life, you you just want to turn it over to God and say, God, cleanse me and heal me and forgive me and, and propel me forward. Our worship is either helped or hindered by how we treat people, What we do with our possessions is we offer them to God, and then also how do we view God's promises, and that's the three major uh, focuses in this short little book. As we looked at Living and loving God's covenant of marriage last week, and living and loving God's commitment to men today. I want us to see how our worship could be elevated. Our worship become could become more heart, felt, and and effective, and being receptive to God. By looking at how, and this is number one, we'll look at chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse nine. Giving and growing our best. Are we giving God our best? Are we growing? Our best. You know, when you were seven years old and perhaps played a a team sport, you you gave your best. But hopefully that uh, your best today is better than it was when you were seven. You grow and you give your best at every stage of your life. And every one of us on a different level of our journey spiritually. But are we getting up in the morning saying, I want to give God my best? It may not be as good as so-and-so down the street. And never compare yourself to other people. You ought to just look at God's Word and say, how do I compare to what God is shaping me to be? Am I growing in my area of giving my best? And are we giving God our best? Or do we give God our leftovers? Leftovers are fine after Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving for a while. But God's always asked for our first fruits, yes, our best. And that's where the greatest joy for he and us comes, when we give God our best. So I want us to see here are the the, the recipients of this letter hearing from God, yes, I see that you give your best and you're growing in that area. And we'll find that they are lacking. Starting in verse 6, you'll see where he addresses, a son honors his father. A servant, his master. If then I am a father, he's the creator and father. He's already indicated that in the text. If then I'm a father, and where is my honor? He's questioning them. He's giving them a criticism here. There's a lack of honor to the father from the sons, the daughters of Israel. And he says, If I am a master, where is my fear? You know, where's the the, the reverence and respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you? And then he uses the phrase, O priests. So you know immediately who he's addressing this to. The entirety of the letter is for the entire nation of Israel. But he's very pointed right here, intentionally, because the people are always going to respond based on the, the spiritual leaders of their day. And he's got to address the priests because... The breakdown of worship here has to do with the failure of biblical leadership among the priest. What an indictment he has. O priest who despise my name. The very ones who were supposed to be the models of of what God is uh, like. The ones who were supposed to lead them in humility towards God were failing. They were despising his name. But you say... How have we despised your name? Oh, when you ask a question of God, he will answer you. You may not like the answer. And so you see the recipients. It's for all of the nation, but he's pointed right here at the priest. He's going to deal with all of the people in the the second half of this disputation. When we deal deal with the dispensation number five, he, he speaks to the plurality of all the people. But in this first section, he's going to address the priest specifically. And so here, as the, 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 the priests were not leading the people righteously in the way they were supposed to be giving and growing in their best, the recipients are the priest who are despising his name. So then we're going to see their attitude. Why is it God's calling them out? It's because their attitude stinks. Look at this in verse 7. God's answer, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? They know specifically what they've been putting on the altar. They know what the people have been bringing for the the sacrifices. And they know exactly what they're putting on there. They know that the offerings are insufficient. They are not uh, first fruits. They are not the best of the best. They are just whatever was left over and it stunk. If you got a family gathering coming up this Christmas, are you going to go through the, the junkyard? You're going to go through some, some trash can to pull out whatever the restaurant threw away that night before and throw it on some, some plates and try to present that to your family? That's basically what's taking place here. And the priest are the servers of this worship to God. Rather than requiring the best of the people, they took whatever. You see their attitude towards it right here in the text. How have we polluted you? And they answer, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Whether they said that verbally or just by what they accepted, people were required for worship to bring, you know, their sacrifice. The best of their animals, the best of their grain, you know, the first fruits, and if they brought something less, well, who's the gatekeeper of, of that? The priests were. They're the ones receiving. It. They'd be say, actually, that, that is an inadequate offering. That's not your best. And remember, everybody's best may be a little different. But they would know the individuals bringing the sacrifice and say, you know what, this, this, this lamb is, is so blemished. This grain is, is so rotten. It looks like it was just the leftovers. And the priest, rather than saying, you know what, why don't you try again? Have you ever done that as a a teacher where something was submitted and you know that child could do better and you said, why don't you try again? You know, but if you just accept it, this is what the priests are doing. They're basically giving consent. This is okay. You know what they're saying? It really doesn't matter what you give. It's just as long as you give something. Just be, be acknowledged that you showed up. The attitude behind the worship was like, hey, you ought to be thankful I at least gave something. It doesn't matter. Is that the heart behind our worship to God? That when we, we show up for worship or, or when we wake up in the morning to do a, a Bible reading or prayer, as I at least gave him something. I mean, is there a lot of value for you in just giving something? When you think about the Lord, is there any value for him? He knows you full well. When you show up and... Do do your loved ones know when you're about halfway there in the relationship? In your marriage? In your parenting? When you show up at Christmas, you know, and you see people you haven't seen in a while, and you're ah, a little awkward. Do they know whether you're really in tune or if you're just kind of there? Yeah, you can pick it up with others. They can pick it up with you. That's kind of how it is sometimes with God. God knows. And God wants your best because he believes you will find far more joy when you truly seek him for what he can do in you. Your best actually gets produced when you just surrender to him and he works in you to work through you. And here the priests are not leading the people well. Which, which puts everyone in my position as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, in a, in a great position of accountability. Sometimes people wonder why I push so hard, why, why I hold to a higher standard. It's because God looks at my ministry and He will hold me accountable by how I teach the Word, how I live my life, and how I call you to a higher position in your spiritual life. just showing up just walking through the motions is never good enough and you'll never find the fullness of joy you'll never reach your full redemptive potential just by throwing out some leftovers and saying it don't matter God's just gonna love me anyway if I just give him the very scraps from my table I'm just calling you a higher position because God is worth it and so are you you look at this account here, you know, that acting as if it doesn't matter or God doesn't care, God does care. And you see here, God desires from you the best because He has done the best for you. Look at this. What is their offering here so you don't misunderstand? He says in verse 8 and 9, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not, what's the word in your translation? Evil. God's not messing around here. He's not saying, well, you know, it's kind of like... You know, it's a it's a three star offering out of five. No, he's just saying. You know what? That's it's a it's a negative twenty five offering. It is awful. This is unacceptable, and it's not worthy of me as your father, as your master. It, it's not showing honor at all. Neither is it showing where where it is showing where your heart is. So he begins to compare. He says, "When you offer uh, those that are lame or sick, is that not evil?" Present that to your governor. See how that would go. You, your governor comes to town, he wants to sit at your table, and, and you go dig through the garbage can to see if there's any leftovers from last week that's still stinking up the house. You show that. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? Which, by the way, just so you understand the context, Israel had a governor. You know who the governor was? Nehemiah. So, if you look back at the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was, uh, he, he basically had uh, chapters 1 through 12 where they rebuilt the wall, reestablished worship, everything was going well. Nehemiah then left for a season. He'll come back, and chapter 13 of Nehemiah will be written. But in this, uh, between times of chapter 12 and chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is the governor, Malachi is writing right here. Malachi, Malachi might be the last book in the Old Testament, but chapter 13 of Nehemiah is actually their last written part of the Old Testament. Just kind of fascinating. So when Nehemiah comes back, he's basically saying, when Nehemiah comes back and he's going to sit down with you, will he be content with this? He he helped us uh, reestablish the wall. He had all the the, the word of God be represented. You know, that that we're supposed to be living to the level of God's calling. When he comes back, are you going to live like this and give him an offering like this? Now I entreat you in verse 9. how I entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. That he, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Well, obviously not. It would be an inadequate offering to someone who is um, well-known and high-positioned. And Nehemiah is only a servant of God. How can we give God less? So why even give it all? Look at verse 10. What ought to be happening is this. In verse 10 he says, check the, the gates. Oh, that there were um, one among you. Out of all the priests, would one of you stand up who would shut the doors? You know, don't open the gates for any more offerings like that have been given. Shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. The the, the gatekeepers are the priest's. The people are bringing the offering, and they'll be addressed. But listen to me. Who's supposed to be leading them? Who's supposed to be checking that, that the worship is, is, is worthy of God's name? The priest, and if one of them would at least step up and shut the gate, stop accepting these things. In verse 11, he goes on, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, Incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Nothing less than uh, his desire will be presented. His name is worthy. So you look at these corrupt offerings and what comes with uh, these cursed offerings, in in fact. But you profane it. When you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, uh, food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among you. These corrupted offerings will be cursed offerings and unacceptable. So, he gives the commandment to the priest starting in chapter 2. He says, "Oh, and now, O oh priest, this I command to you. Where you have failed, I'm calling you to account. This is the example you should be following. He says, if you will not listen If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. Well, there's a description. Perhaps I should have had a picture picture up here just to give you an idea the dung on your faces. Perhaps you have a more literal translation. I'll let you read that uh, for yourself. The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. You know, one of the blessings of a priest's life, as he was called from the Levitical tribe, is that he, they didn't own any property. They weren't given a, a plot of land, but they were given a responsibility to just shepherd the people of God to love them, lead them to the Lord, offer the sacrifices to keep the temple uh, in alignment. They didn't have to do the, the, the hard work of the laborers in the community. They weren't, you know, uh, growing their own grain and, and, and doing all of the other stuff. They, they, What they were doing was, was caring for the, the people's hearts through the, the shepherding of, of the faith. Just keep the word pure. Keep the, the sacrifices right. They had a wonderful position And they got lazy, and they coasted, and they allowed things that were inadequate. So he focuses back. He says, you know how this was established? The reason you have your position, priest, is because I established this through Levi. Look at this in verse 4. So shall you know that I have sent this commandment to you or command to you that my covenant with Levi, this is where it is, the promise was, was established through Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. That's the position of a priest that he has a life been given to him and peace that has been established. And he says, I gave them to him life and peace. It was a covenant of fear or or reverence. And he feared me or revered me. He stood in awe of my name. This was my promise, my my connection, my covenant with Levi. And they're to follow in that pattern. And so uh, allow Levi to be the correcting component in their lives today. It says in verse 6, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity, from their sins. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, that knowledge given by God through his word, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I took those two verses this morning and I texted them to several pastor friends of mine, just to remind them what is their position. Their calling is from God. Their peace and life have been given to them by God. And therefore, what is their responsibility today as they stand in the pulpit? To give instruction in uprightness that they would be living out the very words that they're speaking. That they're calling people to seek instruction. That they ought to live a life in such a way that it's honorable to receive it in these uh, times. In verse 8, he goes on, but you have turned aside from the way. The simple way he's called them, these priests in this day have turned aside from the correction of Levi. He says, You have cursed many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is one of the reasons. Why it's essential that we go through all of Scripture and not just our preferred Bible verses or passages. Some would ask, why are you going through Malachi? Never heard a message in Malachi. That's why we're going through Malachi. Because we can all, as pastors be tempted. You know what? I would prefer to take just the John 3:16s of life, all the, the, the positive, encouraging Bible verses, and just just talk about things we already agree on. Why? Jump into controversial or difficult passages, because God gave them to us. And because I'm held accountable. And as you, as some of you are leading small groups, Sunday school classes, teachers, you know, James is very clear in chapter 3, not many of you should be in positions of authority teaching the Bible. Why? Because you're held to a higher account. Never take that lightly. Just like it says in the Old Testament, God can raise kings and lower kings. He can raise spiritual leaders and He can take them out. If you don't hold His Word high and point people to Him in all that He says not just in your preferred passages. So look at this. He addresses the priest. He says, you failed, but he does have something here for us. Look back to the the model, the covenant with Levi. We need to be growing, giving and growing our best. Now I want you to go to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 6. He's going to address all of the people. Based on what he said to the priest, now he says, Now, you are also held responsible. You are also held accountable. There are times in, in, in our present day generation where pastors have fallen. They have, they have uh, uh, taken a back seat and, and just coasted. Or they have outright sinned and, and, uh, and profaned the name of God in the testimony of the church. And there are people who in the church go, Well, Well, it was their issue, their problem. It's not mine as a congregational member. Well, listen to me. We are all as Christians on the front line of what God is doing. And yes, leaders are held to a higher account, but that does not mean the individual member of a church or of the community of Christians are, are not held to an account. We are all needing to give and grow our all. We give our best, but we ought to give it all. And that we ought to seek what God says when we get to heaven. And God says, why should I let you there? Why should I let you come on in? You're not going to quote me. You're not going to quote some former pastor or Sunday school teacher. You're going to have to to proclaim what you believe about Jesus Christ. Well, brother, so-and-so used to say, it's great, but what did I say, God says to you? What, What does the Bible reveal to you? Do you believe in the priesthood of the believer? That you don't have to go through a priest to get to God, that you are a priest in the kingdom of God. You have direct access to God. You also have direct access to the Bible. I was just hearing from somebody this morning that they're, they're making their, their second way around the Scriptures as they're reading all of it. Let me encourage you to take the Word of God, read it. Listen to it. Think about it. Take notes in it. Meditate upon it. Let this living word change your life and pray to him directly and hear from him what he desires to do in your life now. So we'll see in chapter 3 verse 6 how he's addressing the people on the same uh, issue you'll see the reliability of God never changes. He says in verse 6, for, uh, chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, he's talking to all of you, O children of Jacob are, are not consumed. He's going to call them back. He says in verse 7, From the days of, of your fathers, plural, you, plural, have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, plural, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So he's going to go directly to their offerings because that's what he addressed with the priest. He says, will man rob God? Yet you collectively are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And so he shows that their wallets actually affected their worship. In your tithes, and contributions, tithes and offerings, you collectively, plural, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He says in verse 10, you want to correct this, you want to make this right, you want your worship to be acceptable, then then see how you hold on to your possessions and, and reverse course. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Perhaps you recall last week, I mentioned the time period that they were in. The the, the economy was depressed. Uh, The the difficulties were, were growing. And rather than turning to God and running to Him to be sustained, they were holding back, holding back their worship, holding back their tithes and offering, giving God less than the best, and just saying, we'll just kind of hunker down until this, this season passes. And God says, in those times, do the exact opposite. Rather than holding back and becoming more conservative, you become more liberal towards me in the sense that you love me and show me your best, and I will bless you far more than you can ever imagine. You know, the last several years, there's no, there's nobody questions the difficulties of our days. Worldwide, uh, depression of the economy, that the interest rate is high, and it's challenging with the, the pandemic. Certainly, that caused a lot of um, e- economic turmoil, and, and people are, are employed, and then unemployed, or underemployed, and, and it's just a, it's a wreck But I wouldn't say that we've been in the Great Depression era like it was a hundred years ago. But you know, in our day, uh, it's been confirmed, several meetings, several things that I've been watching and reading and listening to of late, that uh, the average American Christian, I'm not speaking of the world, I'm speaking of just Christians who say they they, they honor God and fear Him. The average American Christian gives less than 2% to their church or, or any um, nonprofit organization to help. We, we spend far more on ourselves and our own pleasure than we do to help others. But in the Great Depression, it was over 5%. The Great Depression, where people were starving and they didn't know where their next meal would come from or, or could they sustain their family. They were far more generous during the Great Depression than we are in our day In in these economic times. And I've seen it. I've seen, oh, I I don't know, you know, things are really tight. Let me get on Amazon and just purchase about $400 worth of more stuff because, you know, it's so tight right now. I've seen this with people as they're talking. uh, Don't go to Sam's Club on a Saturday. That is an evil place. Both the people, and the uh, products, I'm telling you, just gonna, but you, you wouldn't know that we're having difficulty in our day as everybody talks about. Apparently, they didn't, they didn't watch the news of how awful things are. But I, I don't call the world to account and neither does God here. God's calling his people to account. He says, you want blessings, but look at the way you, you, you honor me or the lack of honor. Why don't you test me? It's the only time in Scripture I ever say that he says, test me in this. You test me, and God will always pass the test. Some of you are in final exams right now. I'm praying for you. I do pray you pass. But God definitely will pass. We will fail the test if we never honor him or test him in these things. Open. The windows of heaven, he says, he will pour down. Pour, that's a flood of blessing until there is no more need. He rebukes the devourer. Notice in verse 11, he says, I rebuke the devourer for you. The one who who continues to destroy, destroy the crops, destroy the lands, destroy the the challenges, destroy uh, your forward progress. I will rebuke the devourer for you. And that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you collectively blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. You know, God is not a weak God, and God is not a God who needs your stuff, He has everything. He has a limited supply of resources. And since he has no need, and he has never had any need, you begin to wonder, why is he asking for the tithes, the contributions, the offerings? I mean, even if we, 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 we give God, thinking, well, it's because he is a God in need. You know, I want you to listen to the words, just, just a few verses. Psalm 50, verse 12 is fascinating to me. If I were hungry... All right, God is speculating here., you know, you're offering things. He says, "All right, just I'll, I'll, take, I'll take your thought here, and, okay. if I was hungry, God says, "I would not tell you, <laughs> That's what He says in, in Psalm 50, verse 12. "If I were hungry, I, I'm not going to tell you about it, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Why would He come to someone less than to require them to meet His needs? What God wants from us is an offering of thanksgiving for what he has done because it shows our heart of appreciation, our heart of allegiance to him. In Psalm 50, verse 14, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. It helps you recognize who God is and that he is worthy of your heart, your resources, your all. You lay it all on the altar. It's about an eternal investment, and it's about a grateful response. Randy Alcorn in The Treasure Principle, great little book, says this, financial planners tell us, when it comes to your money, don't think just three months or three years ahead. Think 30 years ahead. It's a great idea. But he goes on to say, but Christ, the ultimate investment counselor, takes it further. He says, don't ask how your investments will be paying off in 30 years. Ask how it'll be paying off 30 million years from now. Have an eternal perspective with all of your resources. An eternal investment is what we, we see. When we give to God, God blesses more than just our own lives. He blesses many. But the grateful response, and in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, it says this. King David says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. I will not give something that costs me nothing. Oh, I love to re-gift some things when it's less than what I desire, but it didn't cost me anything. There are times when, when we uh, we've been given something, uh, you know, it's just some kind of product, and we just pass it along, but it didn't cost us anything. True offering is when it's gonna. It, it may cut in a little bit. It may hurt. It may be a sacrifice. But we give God our all. You know, we pass the offering bags around here. And an old story, I think I've told it here before, a little boy, first time he ever went to church, he was about eight years old, Chula Vista, California. He ran right up to the front. He sat down, he listened, and and God was just bigger than he could imagine and all the things going on there. And they came by with the offering plate and they were passing it. And he's like, I mean, he didn't have anything. He rode the bus to get to church because they picked it up in his apartment complex. And, and as they were passing the offering plate, he just—he oh, just kind of shook, you know, shook his head. No, I, I don't have anything. And it kept going down. And then he stopped and he realized, I do have something to give. And he got a hold of the usher. The usher came back, and the, and the little boy took the offering plate. You know, it already had some money in there or whatever and offering envelopes. But he took it and he put it on the floor. And he stepped right into it. God, it's not much, but it's all I've got. That's what God's calling all of us for. We think we tip God, we give Him a little bit, at least we showed up. But God, when He calls for us, He says, listen, you want to be blessed, just step into the offering plate. Give me all of you. Because when Christ came, He gave all of Himself for you. Where's our heart for God? That's what He's calling us back to. We can conclude this focus. I I wanted to, to to just bring our focus back a little bit to just how God is blessing our church but also blessing the community because we're we're a part. But we can't walk away from the passage not evaluating our own um, financial contribution to what God is doing. This is what Christmas is all about, is it not? When we consider giving to others, why? Because it's the model of what God did for us. For God so loved the world that he gave a Christmas gift called Jesus for you. And what is our response? When we know there is need and when God is asking us, we give. You know, during the month of, of December, we give to Lottie Moon, which is our annual um, international missions fund. But one of the, the, the difficulties of our generation is that we give to causes, but we don't give out of discipline, which God is teaching here in Malachi. This ought to not be a special event. It ought to be your lifestyle. I think every leader at West Lynchburg ought to be held to account that they're, they're giving to the level. How can you teach? How can you lead if you're not even desiring to give your best? I'm going to give what I gave several you know, months ago, uh, and some of you weren't here for that, so I'm going to give the challenge again. I'm going to throw it up here. It's a four-month challenge. I think it's a good reminder for all of us. And I know it's awkward to talk about money. It's awkward for for preachers to talk about it. It's a taboo subject. It's awkward for Christians to hear it. But I just think as we deal with this passage, and by the way, I don't work on commission, so it makes no difference to me. But it does in my position of just saying, this is what the Bible says. So I'm going to give you a four-month challenge. Four months. You know, it's four months. uh, Two days ago, four months to Easter. So between Christmas and Easter, might you take an additional step of faith in your giving you could start from maybe you're a non-giver i don't give anything and you say i'm going to move from a non-giver to a to an initial giver i'll see if it hurts i'm going to test god in this and see if it might be all right will he cover my needs if i if i if i give in faith Maybe you can go from an initial giver to a consistent giver, whatever that amount may be. But I'm going to move from just once in a while to, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to give once a month. I'm going to give once every other week. I'm going to give every time I get a paycheck. I'm going to give consistently, whatever that may look like. Maybe you'll move from a consistent giver to a proportional giver. This is really where Malachi begins to talk about it. He says, your tithe, tithe literally means 10%. But I think if you could just move from consistent to proportional, like I'm going to give 1%, less than the Great Depression, but I'm giving something consistently. Great, you're moving towards faith. You're moving towards trusting God and testing Him to see if He might not cover your needs when you honor His name. Maybe you move from uh, proportional to a sacrificial giver, where you give to a level that it may even hurt. Go ahead, I dare you. God tells us in Malachi three ten, I dare you. See if you can outgive me. There's a website right there, wlbc.life backslash four. If you're willing to take one of those steps of faith, you're not giving through that particular website, it's just a, an opportunity for me to pray for you. If you say, you know, I'm going to move from one stage to another, I would love for your support pastor to pray for me. If you'll go to that website, just fill it out. Just tell me where you're at because I'll be praying for you. I'm not checking your, your giving balance. You know, I'm not, I'm not like that. I just want to know that you are taking a step of faith because to my own heart, it is encouraging to know that when I'm being held accountable by God to teach what the Bible says and you take that as your responsibility to fulfill what the Bible says, it encourages my heart and it helps me know that the Word of God is piercing and I'm preaching according to His Word. I want this Holy Spirit to bless you far more than you can ever imagine in many areas of your life. But this is one that your wallet actually can help or hinder your worship.